Hi there, and welcome to Finding Our Flavour, a podcast about food and people, where we meet people and we try their food. It's a show that asks, how does the food we grow up with help shape the people we grow up to be? Especially if you're living in the hyphen between cultures. My guest today is Dominican-American novelist Clavis Natera, an exciting new Afro-Latina voice on the literary scene. We're talking food and family, race and recipes, tastes and tales. Here's a little appetizer for you. It is as decadent as you would expect. One can of coconut milk, one can of evaporated milk. The dish for me symbolizes in some ways the complexity of what I think it means to be an immigrant. That looks like chocolate milk, but it tastes like pureed boiled kidney beans. I'm... <laughs> the minute people hear beans, they're like, there's no way that's going to be good. Hey everyone, I'm Rajesh Merchandani, food fan, broadcaster, story whisperer. I was born in India, grew up in England, and now I live in America. I started finding our flavour because I really want to share my mum's amazing Indian recipes with you. And because I think for many people, especially those of us from migrant and diaspora communities, the food we grow up with reminds us where we came from, but also helps us figure out who we are in the places we now call home. So in each show, we're going to meet and celebrate fascinating people doing amazing work, flourishing between cultures, cherishing the flavours of home. I feel like my mom always knew that if I was coming during the work week and I was really hungry, I wasn't just hungry for the food, that I was hungry for the comfort of um, what she put in the food, which was the love. My guest today is Dominican-American novelist Clavis Natera, who spent 13 years crafting her debut novel, Neruda on the Park, a rich and vivid and delicious drama set in New York about family and race and class and the sacrifices we make to save what we love the most. I knew that I wanted to tell stories that were rooted in my community. There's still a dearth of, of stories and especially stories that come out of the immigrant experience that portray us in what I think to be the truth of who we are. Clavis Notera, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I am a big fan of food. I'm a big fan of books. So just spending time here talking about books and talking about food is just a wonderful time. Fantastic. So the dish that we're going to start off talking about is what? Habichuela con dulce. And it is a dish that I grew up um, eating in the Dominican Republic. We usually eat this dish the Friday before Easter. So it is a celebration of the end of Lent. And it is as decadent as you would expect. Um, it is a, a rather unusual dish. It's made with beans and cream and sugar and a lot of warm spices. So it's just a really um, unusual dish, I would say, for folks who think about dessert and the richness of it. And why did you want to share it with us today? What's special about this dish and how is it featured in your life? So part of the reason why I selected this dish is because the dish for me has really morphed and changed quite a bit as I have morphed and changed in my life. And so for me, it symbolizes in some ways 
um, the complexity of what I think it means to be an immigrant, of what it means to change your taste as you're growing. Um, I didn't eat sweets as I was growing up. Um, we weren't really a family of people who had dessert at the end of every meal. It was really only during holidays or during special occasions that we would eat desserts. Even to this day, when people hear that I actually don't like sweets, they're always a little suspicious of me. I think people grow <laughs> very suspicious of anyone who doesn't like sweet food. Um, and so for me, like this is the one dessert that I crave. It is the one dessert that I yearn for. Um, and it is just the one um, dessert that I actually um, often think about when I think about what it means to me to be home and to be comforted by food. Of course, you know, you sent me the recipe before today, before we're speaking, and I tried it out for the first time. And I'd love for you now to take a listen to what it sounded like when I had a go. This is a recipe that I'm really, really interested to try. It's like nothing I've ever imagined or tasted before. It's supposed to be really sweet and really you know, over the top, and so I'm really excited to try it. So the first thing we have to do is boil the beans. I am adding five whole cloves and one cinnamon stick. We're gonna boil these up for about 45 minutes until the beans are really soft. So I've gotta put everything else into the pot. Right, sweet potatoes go in. One can of coconut milk, one can of evaporated milk. All right, what else, what else, what else? Whole milk, four cups, wow. There's a lot going in this recipe. Two sticks of cinnamon, one teaspoon of nutmeg. Here we go. One teaspoon of salt. I guess that's good. Even out the sweetness. What am I missing? One pound, a pound of sugar. Wow. That's exceptional amount of sugar. That is cake-sized sugar. Okay. We need to be going on a long run after we eat this dish. Right, I'm just checking the beans and I think they are done. So I'm just gonna fish out the cinnamon stick. The next thing I need to do is I need to actually puree all of that. Blend it, water and beans together into a really nice smooth puree like a dip. Okay, let's take a look at it. Okay. That looks like chocolate milk, but it tastes like pureed boiled kidney beans. I'm, <laughs> I, am, I am looking forward to the transformation that will take place, undoubtedly, by the addition of all the delicious ingredients that are already in the pot. That has been slowly cooking away for about 20 minutes now, and it looks like sort of warm cocoa. I think the next thing to do is actually just to try this. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Oh. That's like Christmas, Easter, birthday, Thanksgiving, all rolled into one. It's so comforting. Mm. 
everyone is so suspicious of this dish because the minute people hear beans, they're like, there's no way that's going to be good. And then when you try it, it's just such a wonderfully warm, comforting dish. You know, you had said that it had to be served with these little milk cookies called uh, galetitas. And <laughs> you said I sounded organized. The day before, I went to three supermarkets across the area where I live, like 10 miles, to find these tiny cookies. And there was a tiny little packet, and they're little tiny miniature little things. 61 cents the cookies cost me. It cost me more in gas, probably driving between the supermarkets. Especially now with gas prices. <laughs> right. But, you know, you've got to be authentic to the recipe. Yeah. When I was growing up, those little cookies were like my favorite part. And like my mom would not let us anywhere near the kitchen because she knew we would eat these milk cookies before they made it into the habicholas con dulce. You said that this dish was important to you because it, it sort of reflects your journey as an immigrant in the way the dish has evolved and you've evolved. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my own journey has been... Um, I would say it's been a tumultuous journey. You know, I arrived in the United States when I was 10 years old. Um, we lived with various family members until my mom was able to get an apartment um, for us to live all four siblings with her. Um, the only way, though, that we actually could afford an apartment was for her to work 24 hours a day as a home attendant. So one of the things that I always tell people about my own journey is that Aside from being separated from my father, who was um, who stayed behind in the Dominican Republic when I was 10 years old, I was also separated from my mother because when we came here, we ended up working with family members and um, living with family members for quite a while. And then when we finally were able to get a home, she still had to work 24 hours a day. So we lived with an aunt. Um, so, you know, the process of migration into the United States, I think what's really shocking for me and my siblings. Um, and storytelling and books became a really, really big part of my life. So there was again, like this kind of um, shift from being yearning for my parents and looking forward to making phone calls to the Dominican Republic, because the only way we could talk to our dad was through these phone centers they used to have in, in migrant communities. I mean, most people didn't have phones back, you know, in the late eighties. Um, and, you know, for me, like crafting these stories and preparing to tell my father what it was like in New York city, what the winter was like, what snow was like, what trains were like, um, was really the preparation that I think ultimately led me to valuing words and valuing stories so by the time that I got to college where I was like, I want to be a writer, you know, and I started taking like formal creative writing courses, um, I knew that I wanted to tell stories that were rooted in my community. You know, there, there's still a dearth of, of stories and especially stories that come out of the immigrant experience that portray us in what I think to be the truth of who we are as a community. What do you mean by that? Well, there's just like a lot of cliches, I think, you know, I mean, at least when I think about the way that women are portrayed as immigrants, there's this tendency to like portray, especially Latinas, and I'm an Afro-Latina, so I think we're always either over-sexualized or we're subservient. To me, it became really important to tell a counter-narrative that I think express in reality 
who we are when it comes to resistance, who we are when it comes to standing up for um, the things we love, home, our culture, um, our families. Um, and so for me, that's, that's a lot of what I want th this book to do, is to be a celebration of, of my community. Food, I, I, when I read the book, certainly seems to have a special place in the story of Neruda on the Park, almost like a character. Uh, were you aware of that? Was that deliberate? Why was that? Yes, it was definitely so intentional. And I was so happy when you and I actually spoke about this book and um, how deeply you connected to this theme of food. Um, I wanted food to work in a few different ways in this dish. Um, in this dish. I'm calling my book a dish now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, I wanted it to work on different levels. Like the first level was, of course, to describe food in a way that brought any reader, whether you are someone of Dominican descent or a Latinx person who would be familiar with the flavors that I was describing or someone completely alien to them. I wanted to invite you into the descriptions of these meals so that you would want to eat them. And I am a big fan of food in my whole life, as you well know. <laughs> I, I consider myself a foodie. I love delicious food. Um, and I think there's nothing quite as, um, you know, just in my perspective, I think there's there are very little things in our lives that connect us to each other across language, across cultures, the way food does. And so for me, it was really one way to remind all readers that food is a celebration of culture, Food is a way in which we invite other people into our culture. And food can sometimes be a way in which we manipulate each other. So that's the, the, the other way in which I wanted to use food. You know, Eusebia, who is one of my main characters, um, is just an artist. And for me, I also think that we don't often give credit to women who cook at home as the artists that they are. And Eusebia is able to disarm people with her meals. She's able to draw people and get them to consent to incredible things that happen in this book, largely because of what a good cook she is. And so for me, it was also a way to yield her power um, in this way that most people would dismiss or not think of it as an art form. You know, then you're, what you said there about you know, food as a way to connect people across race, culture, you know, language. That's exactly what I hope this show is going to be about, to remind people that food is a reflection of our shared humanity. And for migrant and diaspora communities, it's also, a, it's, a, it's a continuation of a culture that we left behind or a culture that has been diluted or become customized or hybridized. The United States has a habit of demanding complete surrender when it comes to assimilation. And, you know, many children have this, you know, I'm a mom now and I have two young kids um, and I've grown up around other immigrant kids who grew up differently than me. I mean, I always ate the free lunches at school because, you know, we were like low income, but I know children that grew up where, you know, if they brought different kinds of food into school that were picked on and, you know, there's still this habit that I think happens even among adults of sometimes thinking of food that 
has different textures of different smells as being something um, un-American. And so, you know, I, I often think about the way that food has a way of forcing us to confront who we are as people, to confront who what we value, which sometimes is different textures and different combinations. Um, and then I also think what you're saying about how for those of us who learn to value and hold on to those flavors of home, it really can become quite a powerful tool for memory and for you know maintaining that connection over time. I'd love to read another little excerpt from the book just to really whet listeners' appetite and really get them kind of salivating for the, the flavors you describe. Here's a, an early description. Um, Eusebia, this is your main character. Eusebia placed a man-sized serving on a plate in front of Luz, her daughter, and waited for her reaction. The rice was a white mountain topped with pollo guisao, steamy with a sweet aroma of tomato sauce. On the side, in a small bowl, she placed black beans garnished with chopped raw cilantro. A single plate with all the fixings together would have been fine, but the way the food was presented was a reminder Eusebia considered her daughter king of this house. Luce smiled at her, winked with exaggeration at the pomposity of the display. I can almost smell that mountain of food and I, I defy anyone to not want to eat as a result of that great description. That is food that you're describing that crosses boundaries. Anybody would want that, I hope, and I think anyway. I agree. I mean, there's one line too that I'll just read to you. It's one of my favorite lines in this whole book. When Luz is thinking about, you know, she takes the first bite of this meal her mother has made her. And, you know, Luz has had a terrible day. She has lost her job, which happens within the first few pages of this book. And she's feeling quite devastated. And, you know, she has this first bite. And the line reads, this was love in her mouth, filling her body. And so to me, you know, there have been so many times when I have felt, you know, bereft and distraught and, you know, she just knew, I feel like my mom always knew that if I was coming during the work week and I was really hungry, I wasn't just hungry for the food, that I was hungry for the comfort of um, what she put in the food, which was the love. It's the restorative power of the food we grew up with. It's for me, it's often, this is the food that makes me, me. And that's where I, what I go back to when I'm having, when I'm feeling like the world is getting on top of me, I whip out the ginger and the garlic and the chilies and the garam masala and the turmeric. And I, I make a couple of dishes that my mum used to make for me when I was a kid. Yeah. And isn't it incredible though? I mean, you tell me, you eat that meal and what happens to you? I mean, wh well, what do you feel like at the other end of like, having that food well firstly i feel bloated because i've eaten far too much of it <laughs> of course <laughs> but and also it's never the same as mums but i sort of think that's okay because that's that's part of life you take what you grew up with and you kind of customize it and you make it your own and that's what you present going forward and if that's not a recipe for life i don't know what is but you start with something that you knew and you try and emulate it um 
but it's also it's I find it so relaxing and you know I was having this conversation with another guest on the podcast that when you make the food you grew up with for other people for your friends it's more important than when you make you know non-Indian food for me or non-Dominican food for you if you were to present me with Dominican food or if I was to present you with Indian food as I hope to one day then it would mean more to me that you really liked that food than if I'd made you a pasta dish. And I want you to make, I want you to enjoy the pasta as well, but you enjoying my Indian food is more important to me. I feel more on edge that you should enjoy that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I love Indian food, so I just can't believe it's taking us this long for <laughs> you to like offer to make me a meal. I mean, come on, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> feed me. Um, but you know, I, I, I often think about how, you know, when I travel abroad to London, um, and I was 20 years old and I lived in London for six months from, from college. It was the first time really outside of leaving for college to upstate New York where I had gone anywhere by myself. And I remember being a broke college student and finding Indian food. And the first time I ate Indian food was in London. And, you know, there's quite a huge Indian community in London, as you know, of course. <laughs> and, you know, part of the reason why I loved Indian food is because the stew, like a chicken tikka masala, in some ways mimics like a pollo guisao. There's a certain underlying sweetness in the food. Um, you know, obviously there's rice and there's, you know, uh, different kinds of combinations of vegetables that just really reminded me of home. And so there's a way for me in which I often think the food that I love in some ways can transport me into uh, the food that I grew up with. Uh, you were in London as a student and you said that you went to university and you wanted to be a writer. But as you said yourself, then you got a corporate job. So talk to us about that journey. You always wanted to be a writer, but what stopped you pursuing that path earlier? You know, I think for me, um, you know, I didn't grow up with any examples of artists who were able to make a living as writers. And one of the things that I decided pretty early on in my life is that I didn't want to be poor. You know, I saw my mother become injured because of, you know, the the strenuous um, level of her work. She was a home attendant and she had to work, you know, anywhere between 12 and 24 hours a day in order to take care of us. So for me, it wasn't that I was necessarily choosing not to pursue writing. It was that I didn't think writing was really a path for me to have a comfortable or good life that would line up with the sacrifices my mother had made. I mean, when I went to graduate school, you know, um, I got a corporate job. I somehow ended up in insurance. Don't ask me how. <laughs> and, you know, I ended up with like a really good job for like a 23 year old, you know, and I kept doing my writing, which, you know, for me, the first step was really learning how to be a better writer. And for that, I went to graduate school for it. Um, and, you know, I always imagined that I eventually would quit my corporate job. Um, I just thought it would happen faster. I thought I would, you know, finish my graduate program, finish a book and sell that book and become a huge success. Um, and that's not the way it happened for me. You know, I finished the book. I tried to sell it. I failed at selling it. 
Um, and so I put that book away. I started working on Neruda on the park. Um, I kept writing, you know, it was very hard for me. I felt very disillusioned and disheartened at that point. And I wanted to like shatter ceilings and I wanted to be an executive. And for me, wealth became a really important driver. And so in Neruda on the park, you know, there's Luz, who is a, a young woman who, you know, faces this kind of difficult life in which she wants to give her parents, you know, comfort and help them have a wonderful home back in the Dominican Republic. Um, but she also feels an emptiness when it comes to the promise of corporate America, you know, and she ends up losing her job um, and having to ask herself, like, what am I going to do with my life? And for her, she ends up turning her back on corporate America. And there were many times, you know, over the course of my 20 year career in corporate America, where I really wish I had had that strength to to turn away, to not be scared of what might be on the other side of not working a corporate job. Um, so it wasn't until the pandemic, as you know, that I decided to take a risk and dedicate myself full time. And, you know, by that point, I'd been working on this book for 13 years. Um, and so it, you know, it, it paid off for me because I ended up selling the book um, a couple of months after I, I resigned my job. But this idea of, of the kind of pressure that we put on ourselves as children of immigrants or immigrants ourselves the way that I think within our own communities, the value of wealth is often um, just placed at a, at a higher value than fulfillment or, you know, the work that we could do for our communities are, are themes that I was really interested in exploring. I wonder if that's because our parents or their parents, when they came to the countries that we grew up in, they had no wealth like your mother, like my parents. They didn't come wealthy at all. And so the security that wealth provides and the acceptance that it gives you in the dominant culture of the country you grew up in becomes really, really important to them and therefore becomes important to us. But you know, what I think is so interesting about what you just said is that there's very little um, stability, I think. Um, you know, I mean, one of the roles I fulfilled in my corporate job was that I was responsible for laying off people. Oh, wow. What was that? What was that like? Oh, it was horrible. I mean, um, there's that George Clooney movie yeah. where, um, you know, he's, he's going around firing people. And for me, it wasn't that dramatic. I mean, part of what I was responsible with doing at that time was, you know, running an operations department. And at that point I was, you know, at, at a very high level, I had become an executive and I was earning bonuses that were more than like what I made my first year of employment out of college. I mean, more money than my mom ever made, you know, right. than my mom ever thought she could have made. And, you know, and it came though at, at this expense of, of what I consider to be my mental health and um, just seeing how people who had committed themselves to a corporation for 20, 30, 40 years um, were all of a sudden out on their ass. So, you know, I think there's a promise that corporate America and the dominant culture, um, especially for those of us who are newer, you know, I mean, I've been now living in this country for 34 years, so I wouldn't consider myself a new immigrant. But I think for people who arrive in this country, there's this idea, you know, that if you work hard and you put in your time, 
you know, you're going to be rewarded richly. And that isn't really what happens to most workers. I think that's really true. I think, you know, what I've said for a few years since, you know, I've lived in the US now for permanently for the last seven years. And before that, kind of on and off for a few more. And and I lived here as a journalist and covered the 2008-2009 recession. And you see that the American dream holds true for fewer and fewer and fewer people. But the belief in it is still strong. And maybe that's misguided, but I actually think it's one of the great things about America. I think that people still believe that this is the land of opportunity. And that's to be, uh, maybe celebrated is too strong a word, but it's, I think it's, it's to be respected. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Listen, this, this is all very complicated because you know what I've been thinking about in one of the other themes that I was interested in like exploring in this book is how like not all immigrants are like yearning to go back home. So for me, that was, you know, another (laughs) really important theme was that, that there's this perception that immigrants are temporary people, you know, that we're just passing through, earning some money and that we're just, you know, can't wait to get back to like our home or birth countries. And, you know, what I know to be a fact is that most immigrants aren't yearning to go back. We consider the United States our home. And so just like you're talking about respecting the immigrants' belief in this country, I mean, I'm totally with you because it's not just that we believe in this American dream is that I think we are this American dream. Like, you know, we're willing to take up all kinds of abuse and to bring up our children in, in sometimes environments that are very hostile um, because, you know, we've, we've chosen this place. And I think sometimes people forget that, that there's like a very deep love that most immigrant communities feel for the United States. There's a lot of loyalty. Yeah, I actually think that in some instances, immigrants are perhaps more patriotic. I love that you're saying that because it makes me think about when I became a United States citizen, you know, I was so proud. I remember going to work the next day and telling my boss and my boss bought me a cake and took me around telling everybody that I was a US citizen. If there's one thing that I hope will happen through conversations about this book is that You know, I'd really like to expand this idea of what it means to be an American. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times when people look at me or hear me speak, you know, the first question they ask me is, where are you from? And, you know, when I tell them, oh, I grew up in Harlem or, you know, I live in New Jersey, they're like, no, 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 no. But where are you from? Where are you really from? (laughs) You know, And it's this idea as like, and I'm very proud to have been born in the Dominican Republic. I'm very proud of my culture. Um, but I also want all of us to think about, you know, this concept of being Americans is more expansive than that. And proud of your food as well. Well, I mean, food, you know, I mean, to me, it's just, I, I read this article really recently that was like, what, you know, what is the food that people in this country love most? And it was like, Mexican was number one, Italian was number two. I mean, you know, I was laughing the whole time because there was not a hot dog to be found on the list. There was not, you know, and so a burger, you know, like people are going to pick a burger over like some delicious tacos, you know? And so, um, I just think that I feel like there's a lot more cohesion in our acceptance of each other's culture when we think about food than when we think about the people that are connected to the food. What do you think about that? I think that is spot on. 
I think it's a really fantastic observation. And I think it's a good place for us to start winding up our conversation. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I'm thinking about our listeners who are probably getting very hungry for some tacos or <laughs> something else as well. So listen, Clavis, um, to thank you for sharing your soul's food with me as you've done today and your food soul with me today, I'd like to share something with you. Now, you know, you took me to task earlier for saying that I hadn't actually ever cooked for you uh, yet. <laughs> and I will do, but what I want to do for you today, I want to share with you an important recipe for me. And it's the recipe for my mum's dal. It's a very, very simple dish, but it's important to me because it was the first thing that she learned to cook from her mother when actually they were basically refugees on the move after independence in India in 1947 and the creation of Pakistan. And they had to move from where they grew up in what's now Pakistan across this new dangerous international border into India. This was the first dish she learned to make. She still makes it with the same secret ingredients and I try and do the same and try and, you know, emulate it, never quite as good here in the US for my partner some 70 years later. So I'm going to send you that recipe. It's really easy. It's much easier than habituelas, I have to say. Again, it's, I think it's very comforting. And, you know, I'd love for you to try it if you want to have a go at making it. And if you do, um, will you call me and let me know how it went? And what you thought as well? Well, I'm absolutely going to try it. And I'm absolutely going to call you. I am so touched and moved that you would share such a, a wonderful part of your legacy with me. And, and I can't wait to try it. Thank you so much. That's what this show is about. It's about sharing. So listeners, the recipe will also be on our website. Also the recipe for Clavis's Abichuelas con Dulce. And yeah, listeners, if you try it, Leave me a comment on the site. Post about it on social. Clavis Natera, debut novelist. I love saying that to you. Congratulations on your amazing novel. And thank you for being my guest on Finding Our Flavor. This has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Head to our website, findingourflavor.com, to get Clavis's recipe for habichuelas con dulce, as well as my mum's recipe for dal. And please do get in touch there too. Food is an expression of our shared humanity. And more than anything, I hope this show can help build a community and remind us that so much more unites us than divides us. And often it starts on a plate. Thanks to Maria Byrne, Paul Blake and Revent for help recording and editing. This music is called Leaving Dakar by Mattis Muller. I'm Rajesh Merchandani. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends to as well.